This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This week's episode is brought to you in part by The Spark. Ever wonder what inspires someone to make a difference through their work? What gets someone's neurons zapping during the nine to five? The Spark is a new podcast about inspiration, innovation, and the mind at work, as told by Philip's employees. Whether it's sneaking out of cancer wards or experimenting with laser-guided breathalyzers, no idea is too big or too small. The Spark, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 20th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, contributing writer Andrew Lawler is here with a story on drug use in the ancient world. What were Mesopotamians getting messed up on? And Sarah Hoppy joins us to talk about her paper on predicting what will happen to plants when there's a lot more carbon dioxide in the air. Which ones, if any, will thrive under climate change? Now we have Andrew Lawler, a contributing writer for science, and he's going to talk to us about drug use in Mesopotamia. So why are you writing this story now? Well, I was at an archaeology meeting recently in Munich, and I heard a very interesting talk by an archaeologist about the way that certain seals, and these are small kind of signature emblems that were used in the ancient Middle East, the way in which those are shaped, the images are related to psychoactive drug use. At least this was the theory put forward by Diana Stein at the University of London, Birkbeck. And I became interested in exactly what that meant. And so I started to dig around to see exactly what is the hard evidence for psychoactive drug use in the ancient Near East. Okay, well, let's talk about what region you're talking about and and what time period. Can you just put us in a time and a place? Sure. So what we call civilization began in the ancient Near East around 5,000 years ago. But prior to that, people already were cultivating plants and domesticating animals as far back as 10,000 years or so ago. And that's when the first villages and towns began to arise 
in that part of the world. We call it the Fertile Crescent. And about the same time, alcohol began to be distilled, probably about 10,000 years ago. And then as the years went by, other substances began to be used more frequently by the peoples of the ancient Near East. Opium, for example, makes its first appearance about 5,000 or so years ago, right about the time the first cities are developing. And then other substances like cannabis make their entrance about the same time. My impression from your story is that while some of this is known, there's kind of some pushback and people kind of avoiding this topic when it comes to studying the ancient world. Why why has this been maybe overlooked a little bit? Well, there's a tradition in the in the archaeology of the ancient Near East to focus on the text, that is, what people wrote about. I mean, we think of the Bible, but not just the Bible, of course. There are thousands and thousands of cuneiform tablets that were written thousands of years ago that give us a great deal of data about what people were doing uh, back in those days. But the problem is that these texts, for the most part, don't mention the use of any psychoactive drugs other than alcohol. So it's been kind of a, a blind spot for the field. Because only recently has it become possible through scientific analysis, through residue analysis, to be able to tell what was in an old pot. And is that something that has kind of spurred this research a little bit? I mean, are they seeing residues of poppy or of cannabis? Yes, absolutely. Uh, before, you know, these things were virtually invisible. And now if you take them to a lab, you take an old pot to a lab and you examine what was in it, you can actually pick up the biomolecular markers, the, the actual molecules of substances that uh, previously were not known to have existed or been used in any kind of major way across this region. What does that tell us about how widespread psychoactive drug use was? Well, that's the big question. Now, in the past, there's been very little research and very little theorizing about exactly how people use these drugs. The new data coming from residue analysis and from uh, examining botanical samples at archaeological digs shows that, in fact, these substances were pretty widespread. So the question is, how did people actually use them? Were they used just for medicinal purposes or did they have some other purpose? And that's where archaeologists are getting excited about exploring exactly what kind of impact these drugs might have had on the development of early cities and societies. And they can also point to trade right, to connections that hadn't been made before because, you know, these substances grow one place and maybe end up another place? Yes, absolutely. Cannabis is the great example. Just recently, last year, a couple years ago, a team at the German Archaeological Institute and at the Free University in Berlin examined lots and lots of samples from Yamnaya sites. Uh, these were uh, people who lived in Central Asia who moved into Europe and into parts of the Middle East and left behind their genetic imprint. We have really good genetic data now on their migration. But what they also brought, this team found, was cannabis. So cannabis originates probably in Central Asia or in East Asia, but the Yamnaya people actually brought cannabis across the steppes of Central Asia and into Europe, Anatolia, and then the ancient Near East. So by the time you have the first cities developing, say around uh, 3000 or so BC, you're starting to see an influx of new substances like cannabis that aren't native to the region. 
But how do we know they were using it as a drug and not as, you know, as people say, you can use it as rope? Yeah, so cannabis is also often used to make rope and has been for thousands of years. But archaeologists have found in some sites, such as uh, some sites in the Caucasus Mountains, which separate the steppes of Central Asia from the Middle East, they have found braziers that contained burnt cannabis, which is a pretty good sign that people were burning this and that they weren't using it solely for rope. So it's probably pretty clear that people understood the uses of these substances, whether it was for a practical use uh, in making rope, but also you could burn it and or ingest it and use its psychoactive properties. Well, now that there's starting to be this buildup of evidence that these drugs were, you know, widespread or used in some places, are researchers going back to texts, going back to artifacts and trying to figure out, find clues in those places? Yes, indeed. Uh, so one of the, the ways to do that is to chart exactly where these substances are turning up. Are they turning up in, in people's houses? Are they turning up in villages and towns and cities? Where exactly are they appearing? And one of the interesting facts that is emerging is that some of these substances, such as opium, seem to appear in ritual locations. That means in temples or in tombs. So where you have people gathering together to perform religious rituals, there also seems to be a connection with these psychoactive substances. Now, this should come as no giant surprise, because certainly in Mesoamerica, we know that substances, other kinds of psychoactive substances, played a very large role in the religious rituals in the New World. However, in the Old World, we've had very little information other than the use of alcohol. So now it seems that these substances like opium were used, for example, in Cyprus, in temples and in tombs. So clearly they had a religious or spiritual purpose, which likely is linked, of course, to their medicinal value. Right. One thing I also wanted to get at was we talked about drugs that people know about today, but what about some of these old drugs that maybe aren't as common now or have been lost? Those are also things that people are turning up Yes, absolutely. In fact, at Ebla, uh, which is a, a site in, in Syria, it was an ancient city 4,000 years ago, very large city that uh, burned to the ground when it was attacked. And as a result, a lot of the material is was burned, but it was also preserved. And in a, a kitchen that archaeologists were examining, they found lots and lots of material, but not the usual bread or remains of you know, bread ovens or the bones of sheep or cattle or goats. Instead, they found lots and lots of herbs. Some of these herbs, like the poppy, clearly have psychoactive properties. So the archaeologists theorized that that these actually, this was a kitchen that was producing large amounts of, of herbal remedies, many of which were used for their drug purposes. Also, it's located right next to a major kind of feasting room in the palace, which is another sign that perhaps people were getting together and using these substances for religious or ceremonial purposes. One thing that occurs to me is maybe someone is using this for medicine. Maybe someone is using it for its psychoactive properties. How are we going to be able to tell? Well, today we make a division between drugs we use for medicine and drugs we use for recreational purposes. But this is probably a, a modern idea. In the ancient world, the idea of accessing the spirit world and healing yourself were almost certainly tied together, wrapped together, entwined. So it's it's very difficult to enter into the mind of, of the ancient Near Easterners if we don't let go of our modern ideas and try and grasp exactly 
you know, why and how they would use these materials. And they use them in, in quite different ways than we would. And what about in Egypt? I mean, you mentioned that some Egyptian tombs had some of these psychoactive drugs in them. Yes, the most famous tomb of all, which is King Tut's tomb in Egypt, also revealed some interesting data when it was opened in 1922. When they opened the tomb, they found that the coffin of the king was covered with the remains of what turned out to be blue water lily. Now, blue water lily appears in a lot of images that you find in Egyptian tombs. And what was not really focused on until recently was that blue water lily is also a a very strong psychoactive drug. If you soak it in wine, for example, as we we think the Egyptians probably did for a few weeks, then it becomes a a very powerful sedative that has hallucinatory qualities. So, you know, clearly these substances were widespread all the way from Egypt to Turkey. Okay, this makes me really curious about drugs in where we live are very frowned upon. They're considered counterculture or outside of the norm. But if they were very widespread in early history, what do you think happened? Like, why wasn't this passed down? Why was this information lost for so long? Why weren't people writing about it? Well, it's a good question. And I think we have to go to the ancient Greeks to get some clues. Now, the the Greeks had these secret rituals that took place, uh, the illusion mysteries, where people would get together, they would not sleep, they would not eat, they would parade around at night, beat drums. We don't really know what they were doing, but they almost certainly were using some kind of psychoactive substance, whether it was alcohol mixed with some kind of uh, drug we don't know exactly. But most of what we have is from later Christian writers who were very critical of these kinds of events. And because these mysteries were mysteries, they were secret, they weren't written down by the people actually performing them. Now, this is probably true when you go back to the to earlier times in the, the ancient Near East, where, where these likely were secret rituals that were performed possibly by an elite, possibly by priests who would bring in the rulers. This was a very sophisticated technology, which they wanted to keep secret. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it seems quite possible that these events were taking place, but they just weren't recorded in those clay tablets. All right, Andrew, thank you so much. My pleasure. Andrew Lawler is a contributing writer for science. He writes about the use of psychoactive drugs in the ancient Near East this week in the magazine. Also on the news site this week, we have stories on using 3D-printed animals in ecology research and a test to see whether robots can assemble an IKEA chair. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on NSF's Young Researcher Award winner and a new family tree for birds. You can read it all and Andrew's story at sciencemag.org slash news. Stay tuned for an interview with Sarah Hobby on what the future holds for plants under climate change. Now we have Sarah Hobby. She and her colleagues write about what might happen to plants as we get more and more carbon dioxide in the air. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks. Okay, this is kind of silly, but I used to think that plants would just be happier with more CO2 in the air. And then as I got older and more cynical, I thought, well, of course, at a certain point, it's going to make them sick. It's like too much candy. And now... You know, the answer that I know from reading this paper and from other things is that it's going to be more complicated than that. And one of the key questions in this area has been, how will these two types of plants, C3 and C4, 
differ in their response to elevated carbon dioxide. Sarah, can you just give us a quick rundown of the major differences? Like what divides plants into these two groups? Yeah, sure. So most plants can use extra CO2 that you give them to increase their photosynthesis. But as you pointed out, there are different types of plants that have different ways of capturing carbon dioxide from the air to make sugars and conduct photosynthesis. And most land plants have what we call the C3 photosynthetic pathway. And C3 photosynthesis is not saturated at current levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. So what does that mean? (laughs) That means that they can actually increase their photosynthesis or their carbon capture up to levels of CO2 that are about twice as high as what we are experiencing currently. But in contrast, there are also plants that use the C4 photosynthetic pathway. And a lot of these plants are grasses. They include a lot of prairie grasses and crops like corn and sugarcane. And their photosynthesis is actually saturated at current CO2 levels. So that means that they generally don't seem to use the extra CO2 to increase their photosynthesis. What percentage of plants are C3 and what are C4? Yeah, so the vast majority of plants on land are C3 plants and a few percentage of like the total number of species on earth are C4 plants. But about half of the grasses, I believe, are C4 plants. A lot of food. A lot of food is C4, right? Yeah. So they're rare but important, I guess you would say. So based on this theoretical understanding of how these different plants deal with excess carbon, what's been the prediction of what's going to happen under climate change as we see that parts per million number go up? Scientists have assumed, based on sort of theoretical studies and also on shorter-term greenhouse studies and field studies, that C3 grasses would generally grow more under elevated CO2 because their photosynthetic rates are stimulated by elevated CO2, but that C4 grasses would not change their growth in response to higher CO2 concentrations. But none of this was saying they were going to be harmed by the elevated That's right. That's right. Yep. Okay. All right. So now we're going to talk about what what you found. So you did a much longer term experiment. Can you talk about the length and kind of what you what you were testing? Yeah. So this research was conducted as part of the long-term ecological research program at Cedar Creek in central Minnesota. And we set up an experiment that's now been running for 20 years. And uh, as part of that, we set up 88 field plots that are open to the air, and they were either planted with all C3 cool season grasses or all C4 warm season grasses. And half of these plots were exposed to present day CO2 levels, and then half of them were exposed to CO2 levels that are about 45% higher than present day levels. And so these levels are meant to mimic the CO2 levels that we might expect later in this century. And how did you get that CO2 onto the plant? Yeah, so we used a technology that's called face technology. And basically what we do is we have pipes, vertical pipes that are arranged in big rings. And we have sensors in the middle of the plots. And so when the CO2 concentrations get below the the target CO2 level, basically 
the valves open and CO2 blows out of these pipes and elevates the CO2 over an area of the ground. And we have replicated rings that are either set up to expose plants to high levels of CO2 or to just ambient air, and then they don't receive any extra CO2. So these plants are getting all the rest of the ambient stuff that's happening, but they also just have this added on additional CO2. That's right. So they are experiencing the same climate that they would, you know, just the ambient climate and they're exposed to herbivory and to pollinators. And so they're experiencing very natural conditions, except that they're getting this elevated CO2. Okay. So how were your results from this longer term experiment different from what has been seen before in shorter experiments or greenhouse experiments? During the first dozen years of the experiment, we found exactly what we expected, that the C3 grasses grew more under elevated CO2 levels, but the C4 grasses did not. But then after 12 years, the pattern switched and C4 grasses started to grow more with elevated CO2, but then the C3 species did not. And so we were really surprised by that. And we've seen that shift now for about eight years. How long do these plants live? I mean, is this all one plant reacting over 20 years or is this generation? Yeah, so these are long-lived perennial plants. So for the most part, this is probably the same individuals, although there probably are also some plants that are establishing during this period of time. So it's likely a mixture of both, but a lot of these plants are quite long lived. Do you have any idea why this might have happened? Like what about this time period or what, what's going on with the plants that made this switch happen? We were pretty mystified by this unexpected result and we don't completely understand it. But one of the things that is sort of tantalizing is that it likely has to do with how these species are altering the supply of another key resource, which is soil nitrogen. So plants have to have sufficient nitrogen to be able to use extra CO2. And that's something that we've actually found in this very experiment. And in the most recent years of the study, in plots that are dominated by C3 grasses, the supply of soil nitrogen decreased under elevated CO2. But in the plots that are planted with C4 grasses, the soil nitrogen supply actually increased under elevated CO2. And so this probably contributed to why the C3 grasses stopped growing more with the extra CO2 and the C4 grasses began to grow more with elevated CO2. But what we don't really understand is why we saw this switch in terms of the effect of CO2 on nitrogen supply in these two different plots. And that's something that we want to try to figure out in the future. And do you think that the switch could happen again if you waited another 10 years? Well, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> and without really understanding the mechanism, it's hard for us to say whether that's the case. But what it does point out to us is the importance of doing these long-term studies. We had no expectation of these results when we started this experiment. And because we've been fortunate to be able to support much of the the work in this experiment with long-term research funding from NSF, we were able to just keep this experiment growing and see, you know, whether surprises emerged and lo and behold, this was really unexpected. And I think it points to the importance of funding long-term research, especially, you know, long-term research on these 
global change factors like elevated CO2. Can we say something about what is going to happen with plants, you know, as carbon level, carbon dioxide levels rise? I think that we want to be cautious in extrapolating our results from a single study, but I think it does mean that we need to think about the models that we use to predict how plants will respond to changing CO2 concentrations in the future, because all of those models assume that growth of C3 plants will increase with rising CO2 concentrations, but that growth of C4 plants will not. And our results do suggest that the predictions made by these models might not be quite right. Um, so we shouldn't be overly confident about our assumptions, you know, regarding where and by how much land ecosystems will respond to the extra CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. You're welcome. Sarah Javi is the Distinguished McKnight University Professor in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior at the University of Minnesota. She and her colleagues write about the future of plants under elevated CO2 this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the science site at sciencemag.org slash podcast, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.